have a, uh, a wonderful guest speaker this morning, uh, hailing all the way from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, yeah, oh, that yeah. man traveled. He traveled. Uh, yeah, so we have uh, Bo, who is going to be able to speak to us this morning. Uh, I believe Christ Church is the name of the church that he's a part of, and you guys, uh, you've been there for about a year, I think. Is that what you said? A little less than, but yes. A little less than yeah. a year. Okay, so almost a year. Not, not too much there. Uh, hailing from uh, Memphis, I believe is what you That's said. That's right. There it is. Uh, just to give a little background, very simple background. Matter of fact, I think this is all he wants you to know about him. Uh, but uh, first and foremost, Bo loves the Lord and he loves his church. And we are privileged to have him come and speak to us. He loves uh, road cycling. And of course, man, after my own heart, he loves college football. So uh, Amen. yes, there's some beautiful things there. Uh, please welcome uh, Bo this morning as he comes to bring us a word. Thank you, brother. Let's put that right here. Oh, no one told me that I was going to have to follow a full face of awesome man lettuce in Tito. If Adam had told me that, I don't know what I could have done to up my game, but um, man, it's, a, it's, it's handsome dude fest here at Mosaic. Um, my name is, is Bo Collins. I am a pastor up at Christ Church Santa Fe. Uh, we bring you warm greetings uh, from Fantasy up north. Um, we love it up there. My wife Katie and I, we just moved here uh, back in January. Um, we, I have a son who is one year old named Fraser. We're actually welcoming a second son uh, sometime in late November, Lord willing. Um, yeah, it's a delight to be sharing our Lord's word with you this morning. Uh, and thank you for allowing me the opportunity to worship with you. I'd never heard that last hymn, and it, it's a beautiful hymn, so thank you for teaching it to me. It's, um, yeah, it, it's a wonderful expression of our Lord's faithfulness and, and the endurance he provides for us with faith. And that's a little bit what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about faith. Um, the, the title of, of our sermon is not up on the board, but um, uh, Pastor, do y'all call him Pastor Adam? Do y'all call him Reverend Viramontis? What do y'all, what do y'all, what do y'all call Adam? Pastor Adam, great. Okay, so Pastor Adam and I were talking, and he was telling me that he likes to put uh, song titles to the Psalms, which I think is a great idea, only all of the song titles I could find about faith were very inappropriate for church. You'd be very surprised. Um, And so as I looked at Psalm 127, which if you have a copy of our Lord's Word or if you have a a device that has it on there, I think it's going to be up on the screen here in a second. Um, As I was looking at Psalm 127, it, it captivated my imagination about faith as a thing, but what faith does. What faith does. If you're familiar with the band U2, their song, Where the Streets Have No Name, maybe one of the best songs ever written. I'm certainly, certainly Adam loves it. Um, the first three songs of the Joshua Tree album, this is the first of the three songs, it's this uh, mini-concept of developing um, in, in Bono, the lead singer of, uh, of, of U2, de- developing what it means to be a young Christian, someone who is excited about their faith, someone who has been exposed to something raw and wild in the Lord and his transformation of us. And I think, in essence, Psalm 127 captive, captures a little bit of what it means for us to be captivated by faith, what faith is, what faith does and today as we unpack this idea, I'd love for us to think about what does faith do? 
not just what faith is. So if, uh, if we can, I'll read the text of our Lord's word this morning. Um, do we stand here? Is that, is that something we do? Okay, well, we can, we can remain seated then. But if you, want to stand, if you want to stand mentally, you can. Give ear, this is our Lord's word. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, brothers and sisters, as I was talking about, um, I want us to focus on not just what faith is, but what faith does. And and to unpack this idea, I want to tell you about um, life as a single man. So I started my career in ministry as a single man. I've been married for coming up on three years now. And when I was a single pastor, uh, it became very clear to me that the older ladies in our congregation knew it was their job to do two things. The first was find me a wife. They knew that that was their job. But secondly, they knew that they needed to feed me. Apparently, I was not capable of making it all the way to the grocery store. Um, And that second part was actually awesome. And one night, there is a dear, dear sister, um, let's call her Barbara. She invited me to dinner over at her house. And she asked me what my favorite dish in the whole world was because she wanted to cook it for me. Sweet sister. And so I told her, fajitas. Because, I mean, what's better than fajitas, right? I love fajitas. So she says, come over at six. And so I got there and she showed me around her house and she showed me pictures of her grandchildren. And um, it was wonderful, but, but I was... I mean, I was just captivated by the smell. I know the smell of fajitas from a mile away, and it was almost game time. I mean, it was, it was fajita time. I was really excited about this fellowshipping meal with, with dear Barbara. But then it happened. The fajitas came, and it had all the fajita staples. It had steak. It had onions. It had red, green, and yellow peppers, everything you would imagine in fajitas. But it had a little surprise, a, a secret ingredient, one special ingredient that absolutely blew my mind that night, the shrimp. See, I bit down on one of these shrimp, and there was this lemony explosion that happened in my mouth. And I asked her, what did you do to these shrimp? I mean, these are awesome. And she said, well, I just, you know, put them in lime juice and threw them in with the fajitas. That real sweet, oh, I just soaked them in lime juice and cooked them up, blew my mind. It was such a small little twist that I had never experienced that I felt like I had never had fajitas in my life. Truly. Um, This simple twist on something I thought I knew a whole lot about changed the way that I looked at this food item. And I think Psalm 127 is kind of like that lime-soaked shrimp. It adds a little twist to our understanding of faith, not just what it is, but what faith does. Um, I mean, we all have definitions of faith 
in our mind. I mean, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of what is hoped for, the conviction of things unseen, is most certainly a popular one. John Calvin, a, a famous reformer, said that faith is a firm and sure knowledge of divine favor towards us, founded on the truth of the promise in Christ, and revealed to our minds and sealed to us by the Holy Spirit, a quite theological and comprehensive exploration of faith. But these are just descriptions of what faith is, not necessarily what faith does. And today I think Psalm 127 turns our hearts and turns our minds to answer that question. Psalm 127 invites us to expand our senses of what faith does to us and for us. And this psalm allows us to do at least three things when we think about what faith does. It, it shows us the confidence we have in our faith. We get to see the works of our faith. And finally, we see the rewards of our faith. There is confidence in our faith, brothers and sisters. Faith gives us great confidence in weakness. Um, is the text up here? No, it's not. Um, it's okay, though. If uh, you have your scripture, um, you can look in verses 1 and 2 really quick. Um, the psalmist he, he repeats a word, and it's a word that he uses the most in verses 1 and 2. That word, if you're, if you're unable to see the text, is the word vain. You probably heard it while I was reading the text. The psalmist tells us there are three things that are vain. In verse 1, he says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. In verse 2, he says, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stays awake in vain. And in verse 3 he says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of your anxious toil. For he gives his, excuse me, his beloved sleep. This is clearly a central concept he wants us to understand. What does it mean for something to be vain? It means it is false. It is empty. So the psalmist tells the people of God, if you do something and pretend that God isn't really in control, you're fooling yourself. If, uh, well, I'm originally from Alabama, so we would put it this way, ain't nothing and happening unless the Lord's making it happen. To think otherwise is to be false and empty. So you're saying, okay, preacher, that's great. Don't be false and God is in control. What do I do with that? I mean, that's, that's good to know, but, but how do we take that and apply it? Well, the psalmist is encouraging us not to pursue things that are vain, which means we probably should pursue the opposite of vanity. And what is the opposite of pursuing vanity? It's faith. The opposite of pursuing things that are vain is faith. Because if we believe that God is the one who builds the house and who protects us while we are in it from harm, we have faith that he is lovingly and carefully watching over his people. We trust him. We trust his promises. We believe that he will give us what we need. We have confidence in faith. And that is what we receive with this idea of faith. But is there a test? I don't think um, many Christians would wake up and say, you know, I don't have confidence in the Lord in this particular thing today, and that's just going to be where I don't have faith. None of us really work through those categories, or if you do, that's fascinating. I'd love to talk with you about it. What are the tests that we can use to tell whether or not there are things that we actually believe we can do without God's power? Well, 
to find out how broad this concept is in your heart and your mind, what is your prayer life like? Is there anything in this world that you can truly take credit for, that you don't need to petition the Lord for? Are there things we don't need God for and things that we do? Or perhaps, maybe ask it this way, are there areas where we just feel stronger and maybe feel more helpless? You know, I just moved here from Memphis back in January. Has anybody been to Memphis before? Okay, some Memphian aficionados. Memphis is famous for not much, but it is famous for barbecue. Anybody have that Memphis barbecue while you're there? Now look, there's all kinds of barbecue in this world. You got the vinegar stuff from the Carolinas. You got that ketchupy stuff from a state that's you know that way. Uh, Got to be careful here. Um, but the best barbecue in the world is from Memphis, Tennessee. It's sweet, molassesy, syrupy, good, drippy goodness. That is good stuff, and it's dirt cheap. You can get a gallon of it for like a dollar <laughs> in Memphis. Um, Let's say you and I went out for some good old Memphis barbecue, and when we walk out of the restaurant, we are stuffed. We're so stuffed, we have the meat sweats. It is a good day to eat some Memphis barbecue. Um, Do either of us, as we are walking to the car in our Epicurean coma, think to ourselves, you know, I have eaten way too much meat. I am truly helpless. I must pray for the next eight to ten hours in order to ensure my safety. Have you ever done that when you've overdone it a little bit. But I, you know, we all probably know somebody who their body has stopped working as it should. And if your digestive system just quit one day, it wouldn't be so ridiculous to pray to ask the Lord to help you when you were trying to eat. In fact, it would make great sense because now you are aware of God's power, God's authority, God's control in a place where you may not have been previously. I mean, what's changed? Nothing truly has changed. Only our awareness of how much we actually need God for everything. And he's brought it to attention to our lives, whether it's a food coma or something much more serious. I think we don't often like to admit how delicate we are. Sometimes we appreciate peace of mind more than the truth. Because if we think how delicate we are, we would be in constant fear and help and feel a sense of helplessness. But that's kind of the point. It's kind of the point because God wants us to see his power very clearly. And when we arrive at a place where all things ultimately and truly rely on his divine superintending, and we realize that anything we feel Anything we feel strong at, it's simply a matter of giftedness from God. Does this spook us a little? I mean, I think it should. It kind of should, at least. Um, It should because it exposes our infant-like helplessness in so many ways. But that's kind of the point, again. And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't run from that spot. Our helplessness makes us look to Christ. In fact, when, when we survey the scriptures, when we look at what Jesus does with people who do recognize their helplessness, uh, the Samaritan woman from John 4, she was a social outcast who had to draw water in the heat of the day because people despised her so much. The centurion in John 4, he was a Roman ruler whose closest friend and best co-worker 
was dying. The cripple at the pool of Bethesda in John 5 was a man who was unable to help himself because of his injuries. The hungry crowd in John 6, the blind beggar in John 9. There is a connection between all of these people. Jesus chooses to love them in their weakness. Jesus decides to help them because he knew they were utterly helpless without him. They cannot accomplish some of the most important things in their lives without our Lord directly intervening. Am I prioritizing the right things? Do I recognize that my faith will help me do that? Faith is ultimately not an act, or excuse me, faith is ultimately an act of doing this over and over again. We come to God, we admit our helplessness in all things, but we know that he is most capable of doing what we cannot. We find confidence in our faith, but we also see that our faith, well, it does stuff. There are works associated with our faith in the sense that faith doesn't diminish human effort. Faith gives it purpose. Look again in verse 1. It says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. There's something worth noticing here. This building that's being spoken of, God isn't miraculously assembling all of the pieces without using people. Though he is acknowledged most certainly as the ultimate builder, God still uses men to build buildings. Even though God invented the idea of a building... He allows and equips men to build them. God has endowed and equipped and charged humans with doing some of the same stuff that he does. Sometimes he even lets us do his type of work. And he's done that since the earliest parts of Scripture. I mean, think back with me to the opening lines of the Bible. What's the first act we have of God recorded? What is he doing? Bring it. Yeah, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm actually asking. Yeah. He is creating. But how does he create? He speaks. God speaks and into existence, something that did not exist is forced to obey him. And God continues to speak. He continues to create by the word of his power. He calls the heavens into existence. He calls the earth into existence. Plants, planets, birds, fish, all spoken by the word of his power from nothing into something. And finally, especially, he creates man. But after he creates man, he gives him a task. Um, You don't have to turn there now, but if you want to take a note, in Genesis 2.19, this is so beautiful. Genesis 2.19 says, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And listen, listen to what he does. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. God, who has just created everything by the word of his power, brings his creation to the man. And what does he do? He tells the man to speak. And whatever the man speaks is given authority. 
Adam, the first man, is told to do what God has just finished doing, what God ultimately does. In fact, he does this several other times. Um, God gave Adam a specific task to subdue the earth, to make God's new creation new again, to take it and to do with it what he saw fit, to shape it, to give it uh, fit to his design. I think this shows us something. I think it shows us that our vocation, what we do, is an expression of God's glory. God gave Adam a task, gave him a job, and that job resembled the work that God himself had done. It was an echo of God creating, of God shaping. And when we look at Adam's work, we see that echo, that reflection of God's glory, not just his actions. And I would argue that, that our work, the things that we do, is the exact same thing today. That God has called and equipped us to occupy a specific part of his creation. And that part that we occupy, our work that we do, resembles his glory in a very unique way. And that word unique is not thrown away in a very particular, specific way. The teacher shows forth God's wisdom through how he instructs. The mother shows forth God's love through how she cares for little ones. The physician shows forth God's power as they care and restore that which is broken. Our work, when done in faith, is a direct expression of God's power and his person. You are God's empowered and equipped representative for a very specific part of creation by what you do. The things that we do with our lives are not an endless treadmill of Mondays to Fridays. They are specific ways in which God has placed us in his world that you and I might represent him to creation. So how does this give us purpose in our work? Um, well, I think it shows us how our work can truly be an expression of our faith. I mean, first, for many of us, I'm certain that um, work is full of anxiety. And you have a stress-free job. I would love to talk with you afterwards. Our jobs seem to need us to tame things that are out of control. But our faith reminds us that God has not abandoned us, even when things seem out of control. For example, Adam's job was to name all of the animals. Now just suppose for a moment that's all God told him he had to do. I want you to name all the animals. Let's also suppose that Adam is similar to my wife, Katie, who is a planner. Um, I'm not a planner. I struggle with planning. I'm learning to be a planner because I'm married to one. And if you're not a planner when you're married to a planner, things don't go well. But let's just say for a moment Adam is a planner. Think about what was going through his mind, the anxiety that he was experiencing. Wait, okay, I've got to name all these animals. How am I, gather, how am I going to gather up Every animal, how am I going to know that every animal is accounted for? How long do I have? How exactly big is Eden? Um, where am I going to get all the birds? Where am I going to get all the fish? You get the idea. Adam's anxiety probably might have skyrocketed. But in the end, God brings the animals to Adam. God did what Adam could not for him to do his job. And so often in work, I fail to remember that God does God-sized things for us, that I can have faith in him that 
I don't have to make everything happen or bend everyone to my will. But first and foremost, hold fast to the faith that God loves us and will care for us. I think secondly, we in our jobs can bring the principles of God's kingdom to bear in every part of our life. Pastor William Bokenstein put it this way, we must discharge our vocation as if God were the savior of the whole people, because he is. Our devotion to God's cause should shine in worship while transacting business or engaging in political or social activities. Life as a whole must be God-directed. No sphere may be included. Is your vocation an expression of your faith? How it has changed you, how it has redeemed you, how it has restored you. But, but lastly, I think God uses our jobs to pour his grace and his mercy and his justice and his peace onto his broken creation I mean, it's a picture of what's going to happen when he returns. There's this theologian named Louis Burkhoff who, who he observed it this way. If all of those who are now citizens of God's kingdom would actually obey its laws in every domain of life, the world would be so different that it would hardly be recognized. Your job, my job, brothers and sisters, as citizens of God's kingdom, in a very narrow but very powerful sense, is to be a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. God has remade our hearts and minds not to sit in a holy huddle, but to continue remaking his entire creation. Our faith gives us purpose. It gives our work purpose. But finally, there are rewards to our faith Verse 3 seems to make this hard left on us when we are going through the Psalms. It, it changes topics from kind of God's providence and, and our vocation to speaking about children. Um, read with me in verse 3. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Excuse me. How are these verses, these three verses about children that involve, you know, fruit and archery and stuff, how are they related to the verses before them? Well, remember that we're talking about the Lord's blessing being necessary in everything that we do. Whatever it is, whether it's superintending over a city of millions or a family of few, the Lord's blessing is a prerequisite for any success that we may have. So if we zoom in on verse 3, we can see that the Lord has a very high view of children. He says, children, they're a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the room is a reward. Now that, that idea, children are a reward. Um, you know, believers and non-believers alike experience God's love and blessing through the gift of children. And the Lord, I mean, I need to preach this to myself. The Lord sees the sons and daughters of this congregation and beyond as his hand-selected love letters to us. Now, I'm a young father. My son just turned one last month, and uh, like I said, we're expecting our second Thanksgiving. But to be transparent, before I had a son, or, or just a child, um, I failed to grasp the purpose of a verse like this. I thought, um, this seemed to be the scripture you quote to tired parents when uh, they need encouragement or refocusing. Uh, just a reminder that being a parent is both difficult 
and rewarding, and then you've done your scriptural job, right? Um, And that's certainly true, but when my son was born, I learned that this verse may have a little bit more to it. Um, So, you know, we're in the hospital, and we're doing the hospital thing, and it, it was game time. We could tell that baby boy was coming. And our, um, our, our, our doctor, she was, she was kind of part granola, you know. She probably lived in a tent slash part CrossFitter. And it was just an interesting combination. She's this super kind of easy as it goes, but then like kind of flashes of intensity type of girl. Very, very great doctor though. Um, and as our son was preparing to make his grand entrance, she, she lost that happy-go-lucky demeanor. She went into something that was a little bit more than just kind of game time. Um, she, she ripped off her hoodie, and she started to get stuff ready, and, and, and she looked at my wife, and she looked at me, and um, she said that our, our son was in trouble, that his heart rate was dropping too dramatically for her to not make a, a kind of a serious attempt at, at getting him out. So... Um, yeah, all of a sudden the room just explodes into chaos. Nurses and backup nurses and like backup beds, things are flooding into the room and what was uh, a precious moment turned into something of a little bit of a panic. Um, I, I held my wife's hand and the doctors started pacing around like NFL linebackers getting ready for a, a third down blitz. They were They were ready to get this going. Well, it only took a few minutes and my son Frazier was born, but when he came out, he didn't move, and he didn't cry, and he didn't breathe. And for 10, 15 seconds, the only thing I wanted in life was to hear, oh gosh, I even tried for this, my little son to breathe, just to hear him cry, just something. And everyone was dead silent. There was no one breathing in this room. Everyone is watching this child. And finally, he took that first breath. Yeah, I know, like, I told you he was alive, so it all ends good. Like, but when he took that first breath, I got it. I got what Psalm 127 is trying to tell us when it says that children are a reward that children are precious, but that children in so many ways amplify and remind us of the Father's very deep love for his people. He loves them so much that he would give them these precious things, these children, and he would call them a gift that he's given to us. But I think it's really important for you to hear, if you're not a mother or a father, that's okay. You can still get this because you are a son and you are a daughter. You are a precious gift from the Lord. God has used you to show your parents just how much he loves them. But that's not all God gives his children or gives his people when he gives them children. Yes, children are a reward, but in verses 4 and 5, we see there's actually a pragmatic reason why God blesses us with children, and that's protection. Um, Look in verse 4. The psalmist says, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Now, this is poetic language that's got a a semi-literalistic emphasis. 
Working in reverse order, we see the psalmist speaks about the children of one's youth. A young marriage has the ability to produce several children, and as their parents would grow older, their sons and their daughters, as they came to be adults, would be able to care for and support their parents. In their prime age, these newly adult children become a source of care and support for their older parents. But as these adult children grow up, they're described as arrows, the psalmist calls them, arrows that are clutched in the hand. Now this is a modern way of saying children are kind of, adult children are kind of like a cocked pistol. An arrow in the hand was a weapon ready to be used, defensively or offensively. And the psalmist tells us in verse 5 that the man who has a full quiver of them is blessed. These children are ready and able to support and protect their parents in all circumstances. Again, in verse 5, the man with many children shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. The, the city gate in, in the ancient Near East was a place where disputes would be settled. Um, oftentimes, uh, it would be settled with force. And, and to add all this together, the man with a quiver full of children is very protected from insults, from offense, from attacks on his honor, and attacks on his life. Because his adult children, now grown, uphold and enforce his honor. So let's put all these poetic ideas together for a second. Children are expression of God's love. They are a reward, a gift from our Lord. They are protection for their parents. These few verses, brothers and sisters, are the very things which the psalm is opening with an expectation that the Lord can do. They are the very things that are hoped for in the opening verses. All those who labor to build a house desire a place of safety, a place where they might rest their head from the elements. And those who live in a city, they desire safety in numbers and community and neighbors. And as much effort as they spend building a house, And as diligently as they stay watching the city for those who would threaten them, here is the Lord demonstrating to us through his gift of children that he is able to provide not just what we need, but what we want. And even more. Children are an expression of the very heart cry of what we want from God. Our faith, it, it, it gives us confidence. Our, our faith has work associated with it. It redeems our vocation. And our faith has reward associated with it. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, yes, yeah, says that faith in, in Jesus Christ, it's a saving grace where we rest and receive on him alone for salvation as he is presented to us in the Gospels. This idea of faith, of of resting in Christ Jesus, it's what this psalm is pointing to as what our faith does for us. It helps us. It allows us to rest in the finished work of what he's done through his birth, through his life, through his ministry, through his execution, his resurrection, and his ascension. We have been made allies and adopted as sons and daughters of the king. 
we can rest in the good and faithful work of our Lord Jesus. We can receive the many blessings that he has given his people. This church, my church, every church that is not the first church is a recipient of the rewards of faith that the Lord has organized time and space to have people who speak English in the year 2017 say that Jesus Christ is Lord, not by any effort or cunning or cleverness of man, but by his love for us. Brothers and sisters, these are the blessings of our faith. This is what our faith does. May we take the confidence that we have and the joy that we have in our faithful Lord Christ Jesus. Go this morning and live and do your faith. Would you pray with me? Most blessed God, how joyful it is to be in your presence to have your word direct us, instruct us. But Lord, give us hope, give us joy that you go before us, that you know us, that you love us, that you seek us. Lord, thank you for working in us that which is pleasing to you, a faith that clings to you, that looks to you. Lord, would you grow our faith? May we turn and plead with you more and more. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.